So Miami didn't listen to What's the Fix Part 1. We've got a quarterback who was arrested (laughs) in the state of Texas this morning, and we've got four more teams to try and fix in today's episode, a lot of which was influenced by viewer input. So thank you to you guys. Welcome into the Three Technique, a college football podcast at the intersection of the X's and O's and the Jimmy's and the Joe's. I'm Mitch Mason, along with Trey Reeves, Garrett Turney. Welcome back to the show, my friend. I appreciate Uh, you. It's good to have you. We've got a lot to get into today. And guys, first and foremost, uh, What's the Fix Part 1 did really well. In fact, shout out to everyone who's been listening and commenting and subscribing on YouTube. Um, That episode is already trending towards one of our top five episodes of all time. We've done, I've forgotten the exact number, it's 80-something episodes, and y'all really latched on to that one. So Part 2 is is here as well. Um, Garrett, you've been churning out a ton of the YouTube content. We're, we're getting social with it. We're going to be putting a lot smaller video clips on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, what should the people know about the YouTube channel and, and more importantly, how they can help? Well, obviously, the first thing you got to do, if you've ever watched anything on the internet, is you know I'm about to say that you need to like and subscribe. You need to hit the little bell so you get the notifications whenever we do post. We post pretty frequently in the off-season. We're going to make a lot of different clips of these, and we're going to have individuals for every single What's the Fix that we do. Um, If you are, if you happen to have, like, the restrictions on, apparently the thumbnails are getting restricted because of the acronym for What's the Fix. Uh, but we're, we're going to kind of fix a little bit of that, and hopefully we can get it to some of y'all who do see the restrictions. But, um, yeah, so go ahead and subscribe to those. But the other thing is I wanted to shout out, because we have a little bit of analytics behind it, I wanted to shout out everyone who's watching in Texas. we got loads of listeners, Dallas, Fort Worth. we got a lot in Houston as well, have some in Austin and San Antonio. But I also wanted to shout out, we have a decent listenership in the Southern California area. Um, I'm not sure if y'all are just hate listening to what we have to say about USC and Caleb Williams and all them, but if you are, we're glad that you're here. And uh, also, I wanted to shout out, if you just happen to be watching this, all of our uh, friends who are you know defenders of Colorado and all of the amazing things about Deion Sanders and how there's no chance he possibly could miss a bowl game with a team who hasn't won anything in a long time. So thanks all of y'all for being here we're glad that you're here and even if you hate our takes we're just glad that you're here to share it with us sure yeah trey we um i I know we were talking about this we we had some fiery fiery dion supporters in the comments of that last youtube section um you weren't on that episode but I, i don't know i mean you know folks were saying that we're you know we don't understand team building and how that can be done in one off season I mean, I'd love your take here to start this episode. Like, are, are we wrong? I, we weren't inflammatory on Colorado. We didn't even say that they couldn't win. We just didn't think that they would in year one, considering the fact that team building either takes 
a lot of five stars with a proven head coach, or it takes a couple of seasons. Very rarely do you see a really a new head coach at this level come in and just instantly revolutionize something in, in one offseason. Yeah, and look, Dion, their roster on paper next year is probably going to be the most talented they've had, at least since they were competing for championships in the 90s, right? Sure. Talent doesn't automatically equate to wins, but talent is going to get you better than two wins, which they've been accustomed to over the last few years in Boulder. So I think making a bowl game is a solid goal for year one. I think that's an attainable goal and one that, you know, is going to take a lot of work. The front half of their schedule is absolutely brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be really interesting to see how Dion keeps the team focused through that that tough first half of the schedule. They've got TCU on the schedule, the first half, USC, and Oregon, I think, in their first five games, if I'm remembering to correctly. To start so, the schedule, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's tough. I don't care how talented your team is. Got to find a quarterback, and they've got to find, you know, some consistency just as a team. And if they can weather that storm, the back half is a little bit more welcoming to making a run for a bowl game. I think a bowl game's a decent goal, and I think Dion can maybe get them there with the talent. But look, if he goes 4-8, and eight, doesn't mean he's a bad coach. Doesn't mean that he's not the guy for Colorado. It just means exactly. the situation is really, really tough. And he's not the greatest of all time coach yet. So, yeah, like just tap the brakes a little bit. Yeah. Trust yeah, the process. A- team building. If you want to talk about team building, yes, you can turn around in one year. But it's way, 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 way more likely that it takes at least two to get to where they want to be. And just to be clear, Trey, quadrupling your win total in your first year as a head coach, that's not too bad. And so I don't think any of us would be upset with four and eight from Colorado. I think six and six would be a massive accomplishment, which is something that we mentioned in the video. And so for those of you who wanted to comment on it and act like that's not what we said, um, you know, just maybe watch the rest of the video before you decide to, you know, comment and, and call us, you know, clueless or whatever else. And well, and also make sure you look, there's um on the video, there should be little nameplates like right underneath us. Just make sure you like get the nameplates right when when yeah, we, firing off the insults, you know. We we did think that they might have gotten there was one comment that we think got the take mixed up a little bit and then still still wasn't totally right. But hey, not to discourage anyone from commenting. We you know We love the comments. Send your hate. We love it. We have a positive take, a negative take, whatever. I mean, we would ask that it be, you know, respectful and and not, you know, coming for our for our families. But um, you know, hey, if, uh, <laughs> if you like to to yell things in the comments, go for it. Uh Really, though, as, as Garrett was saying, liking and, and subscribing right now is absolutely crucial. We're growing this podcast very, very quickly. And I'll say this, because of the, the listener support that we have, we have some things in the works right now. We've attracted other people um, who are very much aware of our podcast and success right now, and that's because of you guys. So uh, every, literally every subscribe, follow, et cetera, really helps us out um, and is, is tangible growth for this podcast. So right now, I would say if you are listening to this, you are not subscribed to the YouTube, YouTube forward slash 3TechPod. You can Google search it as well um, and hit that subscribe button so that we can can continue to, to reach towards our goals and, and obviously keep cranking out content. Uh, but with all that said, Trey, you've got the news drop and we've just got a couple things to get into here. I let off the show by saying that Miami did not listen to our What's the Fix in part one of this series. Um, They just fired Josh Gaddis, the offensive coordinator, 
They've moved on from him. They're going in a different direction. And Trey, we talked about that offense was not good. Um, Tyler Van Dyke was was not the answer that they needed last season. That offensive line was horrific. But throughout all of our discussion on the Canes, we did not ever discuss firing the guy that won the Broyles Award in 2021. He was the best assistant as the co-offensive coordinator at Michigan. He takes the job in Miami. And then really kind of after all this coaching carousel has unwound, Miami decides to fire Josh Gaddis. To me, that seemed like way too early to make a move like that, almost like you're just kind of desperately flailing for somewhere to place the blame from what was a massive underachievement in year one. But but maybe that's just me. Well, it's weird timing too, right? End of January is typically not when you see these big-time coordinator moves happening. Mm-hmm. Usually we've seen the dust pretty much settle short of you know, an NFL team coming in or something like that, something along those lines happening. But yeah, just really out of left field, really showing some concerns to me on Mario Cristobal managing this program because, yeah, I mean, if he's not the guy, why did it take you a full month after you're done? You weren't playing a bowl game. You didn't have that to get ready for. Maybe he was heavily involved in recruiting, but I don't know that he's necessarily known as a huge recruiter. Y'all can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But, you know, either way, it's just really, really weird timing to me. I think Jim Harbaugh, um, if he's actually staying at Michigan, because I think there was another rumor about him in Denver uh, that came out yesterday. (laughs) But, you know, Jim Harbaugh has to be maybe jumping for joy that his guy Gaddis might be falling back into his lap uh, this offseason as he needs to make a surprise coordinator change. So, yeah, just weird timing all around. And I don't know. We'll see. I'm very, very interested to see who they peg to replace him. Yeah, I thought you were kind of right on that take with the recruiting is, you know, I think that's got to be the only timing thing that makes sense to me is that he was a like a lead recruit on some guy that they missed going into this, you know, national signing day. So they're like, all right, we're going to go ahead and cut ties since you didn't hit on some guy or you weren't doing your job. Like, that's the only thing that makes sense to me is that you because, yeah, you're right. Like, why would you not cut bait right at the end of the season? Obviously, you know, they didn't get what they wanted to out of their offense. And you have a guy as highly heralded as Tyler Van Dyke was coming into the season, performing as poorly as he did. You know, that that's, you know, someone's got to take the blame for that. And if you're going to blame it on your offensive coordinator, great. But yeah, why not cut him at the end of the season, right? That doesn't make sense. And so it's it's certainly an interesting move. I don't think I necessarily agree with letting go of such a such a good coordinator. It's hard to find great coordinators in college football. A lot of these guys, they, they accelerate quickly. If they're a really good coordinator, you can see them make, you know, big jumps. And with as many programs as there are, they're going to take head coaches pretty quickly. They're going to find the hot assistant at whatever, you know, big university in Miami certainly has that kind of credibility. So, you know, if you if you have a good coordinator like that, I don't know why you wouldn't just hang on to him and assume that, yeah, like all these other good coordinators taking head coaching jobs, like who's really left out there to go hire? Is it going to be an internal promotion? Is it going to be, you know, go find some other guy? Are you going to try to money whip somebody? I, I, I don't know what Miami is is eyeing here, but but it's just very interesting timing and I think a very bizarre move in my opinion. We'll have to to kind of watch this space to see who Miami goes after, if they have the right fit, if it is a weird timing for a move. And, you know, honestly, I think with how late this move was made, Miami's offense might draw even more ire in 2023 if that offense doesn't start clicking 
especially to start the season. So uh, we'll watch this space. We'll obviously let you know when Miami makes a move uh, to replace that offensive coordinator. The other bit of news that broke this morning was that our buddy Stetson Bennett was arrested in Dallas for public intoxication around 6 a.m. He was banging on doors, random doors, I guess in an apartment complex, um, drunk out of his mind. So currently, number 10 in my quarterback power rankings, which I've released in as a part of our draft content over on uh, our three tech pod twitter this is i does this really surprise you though i mean like this guy parties hard we've seen that after both national championships now i thought he could maybe hold his liquor a little bit better than this but that is this is the worst possible timing heading into draft season Listen, Lower Greenville gets to the best of us. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he's in Lower Greenville or Deep Ellum or where he was at. Maybe just friends with somebody at SMU. But, yeah, I mean, if you've ever seen his Good Morning America interview after his first national championship, then you're probably not as surprised by this. But it is very interesting. I don't think any of us would really expect that he's going to be going into the combine. Is he now a character risk? Like, is he going to get labeled as a character risk because of this? Sure. I mean, it's not really, you know, in the grand scheme of things, getting arrested for public intoxication, not, you know, the worst sin you can commit in the eyes of the NFL or in the eyes, but it's just one more thing that guys are going to look at in the draft process. And, you know, if that's a tiebreaker between him and, um, a guy like an Aiden O'Connell or a guy like, I don't know, I'm just th- Jay Kaner, just throwing some other guys in that same tier mm-hmm. out there. That, that could be a tiebreaker that could hurt his draft stock a little bit. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you have to consider the fact that when you're an NFL GM getting ready to invest in a quarterback, you're going to look at every little detail. You want to know that everything is good. You want to know every little piece of information is in the right spot. And really, I mean, you have to just consider the fact that, you know, this is this is really poor timing. But it's also not like he was, you know, flying up draft boards, even with the back-to-back national championships. He wasn't, you know, crushing it with his evaluations. A lot of people aren't very high on him anyway. So he really couldn't afford to make these types of mistakes, being a little bit undersized. Maybe there's some questions about some of the intangibles, or not the intangibles, but like the the mechanics of his throwing motion and what he can actually accomplish. I, I'm, I feel bad for him because I think he's a good kid and I think he's got you know, the ability to to succeed wherever he was going. I think when you have that level of success at a place like Georgia, you know, you're going to be able to find your way onto an NFL roster. But, man, he did not help his ability to go do that. And, you know, I think he'll probably look back on this one and wish he could have this one back. Yeah, just a kind of a weird a weird headline to, to wake up to on a Sunday morning. But, hey, I mean, even though uh, this guy could probably probably qualify for for Medicare at this point um, in his advanced age. Uh, it's not something that uh, that you would expect from some from such a gray hair like himself. But again, we'll see what happens and uh, keep you posted as we go throughout the draft season. Uh, guys, part one of What's the Fix did great numbers and folks were asking for more of it. In fact, people even had specific teams that they wanted us to cover in part two. So this comes from Sam on Twitter. Said, really enjoyed the episode. Would love to hear you guys talk about a fix for Navy after moving on from Coach Niamatololo. So Sam, first of all, shout out to you for uh, for the suggestion. We loved it. We've got four teams that we're going to dive into today. And because you asked for Navy, the midshipmen are up first. Guys, the midshipmen went four and eight in 
2022. It's not that they weren't competitive in the majority of their games, but they just couldn't quite find the way to get the offense going when they absolutely needed to. I think it was a little bit of a surprise to all of us when Coach Niamanololo was fired just because he had been there for so long. Um, He and Navy football had really become synonymous with one another, especially after Paul Johnson left and, you know, the triple option stayed installed. Now Brian Newberry is the 40th head football coach for the Naval Academy. He's been promoted from the defensive coordinator role. Uh, And the defense at Navy has really never been the issue. In fact, they finished sixth in the country at defending the run last season. Where they were really vulnerable was the pass defense and that offense, when they did get into shootouts, just simply couldn't keep up. So my question to you guys, I think really the place to center Navy's discussion around, we know they're never going to be able to recruit like a normal program will. None of the service academies can. But it all comes down to how you run your offense. We've seen it succeed at Air Force. We've seen it succeed a couple of times at Army. What are some easy fixes or changes that Navy can make to get back to consistently making a bowl game and, and even being ranked and competing for the American? Well, when Navy was at its best and when any service academy is at its best, they're committing to one identity. Right. And usually in the past, that's been a triple option, a veer, some variation of that. I'm really interested to see what happens with Navy in this new direction that they're going. Grant Chestnut is the guy that they've tabbed as the offensive coordinator. He's coming over from Kennesaw State. I'll be honest, guys, I don't know about y'all. I haven't watched a ton of Kennesaw State, so I'm not going to have like an intense breakdown. Um, Off the top of my head, I don't think they're a triple option team. Though. I don't and think I could so be wrong on that. So it's going to be really interesting to see as that transition happens that we talked about this with Georgia tech on the last episode, that is a tough transition. If you want to get away from the triple option into a different offense, that's not an overnight switch because you have recruited for that offense. You've recruited specific players that fit that offense. So switching every, every possible thing you could, uh, from a triple option to a more modern offense is going to take time. And usually it's not successful in the first year. I'd say like 90% of the time it's not successful. And if it is, it's because you were able to bring in just some generational talent, which Navy is going to struggle to do in this modern era with as a service academy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the offense is going to be fascinating to me to watch how they build it, what scheme they decide to run. And as Garrett takes over, I'm going to start to try to find some stats on Kennesaw State here real quick. Well, you know, the thing that I was looking at with regards to Navy is it's just time for them to catch up with the modern era of football. They, I'm pulling a couple stats from this last year. They averaged 85 yards passing. That was on about 42%. And unfortunately, that also came with about 4.5 completions per game. Um, I, I averaged better passing numbers than that playing in seventh grade. Um, and, and so I, I don't want to insult these guys, but is there not anyone at the Naval Academy that can throw a football? I mean, like, do we need to go the walk on route? The, the let's just host tryouts. Can anybody, you know, hit something 20 yards away, 30 yards away? Like, I mean, what, do, what are we doing here? I, I understand that, you know, the triple option has kind of been the identity. That's where they wanted to go. That's great. That's fine. No issues necessarily with that as a system, but 
uh, I do think it's time for this to kind of move along. And I think we need to need to find something a little bit more suited for the modern day game, because there, there's no way when you're looking at the way the triple option runs, it's too easy to defend because you're not spreading the football out. You're not changing dynamicism. You're not, you know, you don't have to cover sideline to sideline as frequently in terms of running back and forth as linebackers. Yes, you do have to run after the guy who's got the ball, but you're all kind of running at the same pace. And so it's not as hard as, you know, a swing out pass, a tunnel screen, or having to stretch the field vertically and think about covering the seams, think about, you know, having to cover a nine route. And so for an opposing defensive coordinator, it's just a little too easy to defend in the modern day, especially with as much time as you get to watch film and watch tendencies and see, okay, well, if the quarterback acts like this, shifts this way, then we know that it's going to be a handoff or we know that this is going to be a keep that there's just too much that you can do to defend that. So it's just, I think it's just time for them to, to catch up with the modern world and, you know, play more of a modern style of football, not to say they can't play hard nose or be a run first team, but let's spread it out a little bit. Let's get in a shotgun. Let's, let's do some of that, you know? And and if that's not the direction they want to go, that's fine. Uh, But I think that's the way that you fix what's wrong with their program. Well, I think the problem with that is just that requires a certain level of athlete to then compete, right? I mean, anyone can run that. Yeah, turn it over, yeah. A modern spread, but you've got to have guys that can create separation, can get yards after the catch. And historically, the uh, service academies don't excel at that, right? So, and, and that's not sure. that's not what they're looking for. They can't recruit those athletes because of the military service, and so. Um, you know, that's obviously why the, the schematics end up being the way that they are. I did look up Kennesaw State film and they do run the triple option. Now they, they pass it a lot more than I was going to say, you might looking see. at stats, it does look like they pass just a little bit more than a typical triple option team, but they were first in their conference in rush attempts, first in their conference in yards per attempt, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's going to be a very similar look, but it may be the twist that they need where, look, we saw Air Force throw the ball this year and do mm-hmm. it quite effectively, right? I mean, Hazik Daniels, I, I don't know. I checked on him last week. I don't believe he's landed anywhere out of the transfer portal, but he was electric at times, and he would pull that ball and then throw it over the top. And, I mean, it didn't take more than a tight end running a seam route, right? And he was gone to the residence. So I do think getting a little bit more creative with the offense is, is certainly where you have to start. Plus, you know, in the modern era of college football where defenses literally have to be able to defend at all three levels, and especially in the American where it's going a lot more pass heavy, I, I don't know that there is one thing that I would say, okay, this is the fix for your pass defense, but man, you know, some of those shootouts against SMU, um, let me pull up their schedule fast. SMU, uh, their shootout against Oh, who was I thinking? Well, they didn't they didn't respond, but you know, they give up 37 to Memphis, a pass happy team under Seth Hennigan. That's where they got beat. Um, really seven or eight of those eight losses were just due to the fact that they couldn't defend the pass. Um, so I think you know, finding ways to whether it's scheming, bringing blitzes, et cetera, so that you're not giving a quarterback all that time to throw downfield, I think that's where you gotta start. Well, but real question, what are they practicing against, right? If there's nobody on the roster that can, like you were saying, throw the ball, get like create separation, but you're going up against all these other teams that can, 
like, what are you going up against in practice? You're going to practice against a certain level and that's going to influence how you end up playing the game, right? That's what they talk about with all these, you know, when recruits go to schools, they'll talk about, I wanted to compete against the best in practice so I could, you know, go ahead and create a better situation for myself, get better so that the games feel easier than the practices do so that I'm competing as the best. I'm refining my skills. What, what are they competing against in practice if they don't have the ability as an offense to throw a football? If, if you can't practice against a passing offense, then how are you going to play against a passing offense? You, you don't, you don't see it. You don't know what it looks like for receivers to run some of these complex route trees and, you know, do that. So if they're not going to try it as an offense, then I don't expect them to be able to defend it because you're not going to wake up on a Saturday mm-hmm. and just know how to defend this because you you saw that they did it on film. And so I guess if we try a cover three and we blitz a guy different, like none of that's going to change what you've seen and what you've done in practice. Right. And so I'm, I'm concerned if you're not going to try to pass the football a little bit more, how do you expect to be better either on offense or on defense? You know, it, it doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't at least attempt to go about that. And, and I understand that they're not going to get the same level athlete as, you know, some of these bigger schools, but I mean, you can't tell me that there's not some guys who are fast in, in the Naval Academy that wouldn't mind playing some football. You can't tell me they can't get one guy who could be maybe not a burner, but just run, you know, like a like a four five four six fast enough to kind of create some separation there and threaten deep. You know, you can't tell me there's none of those guys that'll play it. Maybe I I just won't accept that as a truth. I understand that it's harder to get guys to show up there, but I'm not going to accept that there's nobody who can pass a football accurately or catch a football beyond, you know, 10, 20 yards downfield. They, they have to be out there, and they have to do a better job of finding that, I think, as a staff and being able to put that together. They have the most unique recruiting challenges of anybody in Division One, And credit to them, I think a lot of teams in their similar situation have dropped down to the FCS level, and they refuse to do that. This, all three service academies want to stay at Division One FBS level, and I think that's amazing. And the triple option can win and can win big, as we've sure. seen at Navy. They've won 11 games multiple times in the last decade. The problem is you have to be able to adjust. And the triple option, it works when the game goes with it. And so if the other team can't stop the run, you're going to win that game by 30 points. You just are because you're they're not going to stop it. You're going to roll right down the field. You're going to take all the time. You're going to win by multiple scores. If the other team is good at stopping the run and they have a quick or a quick response offense and you just get off schedule, they can really torpedo your whole, you know, chances of winning a game with one series, one sequence where they stop you, they score, they stop you one more time, they score. It's pretty much over if you get down by a couple points because you just can't make that comeback quickly. So, yeah, I agree with you guys. They have to be able to find some way to make it a little bit more modern in the passing attack, some new concept, maybe, you know, this little tweak of the triple option from Kennesaw state uh, is going to be able to do that because they did throw for more yards. Uh, I think I looked up the stats. I think it was like five or 600 more yards than Navy did this year. So maybe a little bit more frequency in the passing game opens up that rushing game. And look, they're not playing against the 85 bears in the American, right? They're not playing against, you know, Tulane had a pretty decent defense this year. Cincinnati is out of the big out of the American now. They're in the Big 12, but they're kind of the standard for defense. And even they struggled to stop the run at times mm-hmm. because it's just a different type of athlete in the American. So, it you're able to win, but you have to be able to keep up in these games and that's the big key to me. 
Well, speaking of struggling to defend the run, let's go to our next team. And a lot of people were asking us, all right, when are you going to talk Texas A&M? When are you going to acknowledge how broken they are? And to you, it's right now. Uh, if you're watching this in the full-length episode, you're listening to it on the podcast, or maybe you're watching this specific YouTube video, here's your moment to hear all the problems with Texas A&M and hopefully learn a little bit about what we would suggest. And I think what Texas A&M has already taken several steps to fix uh, numerous issues. But guys, the problems are are abundant. Uh, no doubt that this team was out over at skis in 2022. The recruiting class, the hype that came with that, the best recruiting class of all time. You know, it was offset a little bit once you got into the season by the lack of of true leadership in a senior class. It was a tiny senior class. Um, and, you know, with that, you you didn't have the juniors kind of step up and and institute the culture that AM football is is frankly known for. You know, people like to dog on Texas AM for the the traditions and whatever, but you know, if you're saying that Texas A&M historically doesn't have good culture in their locker room, then you're not paying attention. Uh, Jimbo, since he's come in, has changed that program around. And, you know, look, eight, nine, ten win seasons, whatever you want to, you know, complain about, there were re- real results that, that Jimbo was seeing. Now, this being year five, this was supposed to be that beginning of the championship window, right? He's had four years to institute everything. He's recruited the heck out of the country, this was supposed to be the year that you saw a difference. And instead it went 180 degrees the other way. Um, the offense was beyond broken. And that is what you've heard most of the press clippings about was that this offense could not consistently move the football. They couldn't uh, keep the the chains moving on third down. The number of times that we watched that Aggie team go three and out to start a game was frightening. I mean, they came out with no juice to start any of these games and and put your defense on the back foot. Combine all of that with a first-year defensive coordinator who is running three-man fronts with one of the most talented defensive line units in America, and still you were unable to stop the run. And and ultimately, it just created a, a system that bred deficits early and often in games. I and mean, we've talked about the deficit for uh, for the South Carolina game before on this podcast. And it was like, at that point, you're down 17 to nothing. That team is not built to come back. So issues offensively, issues on defense, a rotten culture spoiled by several bad apples who have since been kicked off the team. You know, that's one thing that, you know, people say these guys left. Well, they are, a couple of them were, were kicked off the team with no invite back, right? Looking at you, Denver Harris and LSU. So, Yes. Is it a failure for the coaching staff to keep them in line, develop them, and then bring them into the culture? Absolutely. Some of this is on the kids as well. With all of that background stated, though, let's start with the offense. What's the fix for Texas A&M on the offensive side of the ball to be able to win nine, ten games consistently? It's simplifying things for Connor Wegman. I, th- I really think it's as simple as that. He is a talented kid. You saw the flashes of it this past year in the Ole Miss game, in the LSU game. Dude's talented. The dude can spin it. The dude can make a lot of really difficult throws. Jimbo's offense the past couple of years was just too complex for the guys that he had behind center. And he's used to 
having some really talented guys back there. You think back to Jameis Winston at Florida State, some of the other guys that went went on to the NFL, EJ Manuel, Christian Ponder, even Kellen Mott, who he got the luxury of having for his first three years at Texas A&M. I think a lot of Texas A&M fans that maybe slandered Kellen Mond um, are maybe taking back some of those words that they said about him mm-hmm. and just how he was able to you know, manage that offense. He wasn't perfect by any means, but he got a hold of Jimbo's offense, especially for that 2020 season. And I think the hope for Texas A&M fans is you've got um, Bobby Petrino coming in who's not known for having the most complex offense in the world, but he is known for having a very explosive offense historically. I know it's been up and down at Missouri state. He's definitely had talent issues there. He's not going to have talent issues at AM. He's going to have some of the most talented players on paper that he's ever been able to coach. And I think that's going to really help. And I think slowing things down and really playing to his quarterback strengths are going to change a lot of things for Texas A&M because Time and time again this year, what we saw was just asking guys like Haynes King, Max Johnson, even Connor Wegman a bit to do things that just aren't in their skill set. Haynes King, for whatever reason, you know, he's a coach's kid. He definitely has a lot of really great tools, but his decision making isn't always the best. And we were, Texas AM was asking him to make reads that were extremely difficult. They're asking him to make extremely, you know, on point timing throws. That's not who King is. That's not who he was. He had a slower release. Look at the end of that Alabama game, that route that everybody wants to criticize. It just, it wasn't necessarily the play call as much as it was, you know, not being the right play for Haynes King. And I think that Bobby Petrino, if you're looking for hope as an AM fan, I, he has a great track record of tailoring his offenses to what he has at the quarterback position. So personally, I'm really excited to see what he can do with Connor Wegman. Also, if you're just looking for a little bit of optimism, five and seven was the fruit of pretty much everything that could have gone wrong going wrong for Texas A&M this year. And I know that's a little bit of a sunshine pumper take, but you know, you look at the injuries, you look at um, the offense not working out, you look at just in, losing to Appalachian State. We were all three there in the stadium. That, that was day. tough. And there was just no energy on the sideline, right? Like there was nothing that could be done to ignite that team. They were going through the motions. And then, you know, that same team, by the end of the year, they've got it figured out and they're upsetting LSU at home and putting up their best offensive performance of the year. So there's talent there. I think there's a coaching upgrade on the offensive side of the ball. I think giving Jimbo less to worry about, just to kind of let him be more of a CEO coach, that can handle stuff on the sidelines. He's not having to worry about substitutions. He's not having to worry about coaching his quarterback and calling plays with his cheesecake factory menu playbook. He's got less to worry about. And I think that's going to be in and of itself an upgrade. So I'm excited to see how Petrino is able to put Wegman in a place to succeed next year. Yeah. I think your biggest issue on AM squad last year, it just came down to the fact that you had 30 freshmen come in and you were asking them basically to lead. And and there was just too much of a weird structure between, well, this is the most talented recruiting class of all time, but also you had all these like upperclassmen that were also there. And then you have like, well, who's the leader? Who's the best receiver on your squad? Who should be the running back? Who should be the quarterback? And you just had too many questions across the entire roster of who was going to step up and lead. And they asked a lot of their freshmen and to many of their credits, they did step up and play pretty well from the jump. 
but to to another point, I mean, you have that many freshmen coming in who have known each other at max in close proximity six months. There's not enough chemistry there. There's not enough trust. There's not enough, you know, ability to rely on each other to make those plays when things get tough. And that's why I think you saw when adversity hit them in the face, they they didn't rise to the occasion, right? They, nobody thought in that locker room that they would be losing to Appalachian State. But they were, and they didn't know how to handle that. And there was nobody available to step up and say, I'm the leader, let's follow me, here's how we're going to get over this. <clears throat> so from a culture standpoint, that's where you lead off. From an offensive standpoint, it, I think people want to uh, – there's a lot of theories and storylines that go along. And I know that if you're an Aggie fan, you'll understand this. One poster says something on Tex Ags, and everyone just latches onto it. Um one of the things that kept getting mentioned was how complex Jimbo's offense was. But if you turn on the tape, there wasn't very much complex about his offense at all from a defensive standpoint. It's not difficult to defend Jimbo's offense when you see multiple receivers ending up in the same spot. You see multiple receivers ending up running the same route almost. And from a from a quarterback perspective, it's way too much to handle, right? Because you're making calls at the line. You're doing all these different things, having to figure that out. So for a quarterback, it's complex to look at. From a defensive perspective, they're not doing anything that's out of the ordinary or crazy. They're not running advanced route concepts. They, you know, spraying guys open. They're kind of relying on each individual receiver to make a call based on what they're seeing in front of them. And then hoping the quarterback knows what route the receiver wants to run, which is why you see so many miscommunications and balls getting thrown to the wrong spots. And so, you know, what I'm hoping personally is that when Bobby Petrino comes in, that he can just say, Hey, we're going to run a slant because it's third and four. And because we're not dumb and because a slant works on third and four or a little sit down route or a little out route or something like that. And he just understands those. Like we're hoping that he just understands those things so that hopefully the offense can get rolling again and use some of that talent. The one thing that, you know, should give you hope if you're an A&M fan is Bobby Petrino knows how to use his talent. He will force the ball. Sometimes this, and I guarantee you this will be a complaint. He'll force the ball to his best players. You'll be like, why were we throwing it to a guy that was triple covered? Well, that's because that guy's name is Evan Stewart and he's your five-star wide receiver, right? That's what's going to happen at times. And you're going to get frustrated, but he's going to use those players. You're not going to wonder, why are we not throwing the ball to this player? Why is he not on the field enough? Why is this guy not touching the ball enough? You're not going to ask that question with Bobby Petrino. Um, and, and so I think you have to just look at this and, and take a big step back if you're an AM fan and say, we asked way too much of the freshman this year. And the the injuries were obviously a concern and not knowing who your quarterback was a concern. And one of the games, everybody had the flu. And, you know, like you were saying, Trey, like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And, you know, one of the games you played on the road and it was cold and one of your best receivers couldn't play because he was wearing sleeves or something like that. This is all just a dramatic, you know, crazy year. And then what do you do? You cap it off by beating LSU, which I think for a lot of AM fans, you know, you just sat there going, well, where was this all year? Right. What? Where the heck was this? Why wasn't I seeing? Well, what you weren't seeing was all those freshmen grew up. You know, you're seeing all these guys who weren't playing a massive role at the beginning of the season finally growing up and having some experience and and Connor Wigman knowing where to go with the ball and the tight ends and the receivers and everybody else understanding what to do and where their assignment was. And particularly on defense, the the bigger issue was, I mean, they gave up over 200 yards rushing a game. That can't continue, obviously. But what was happening? Well, you're going to have either freshmen who don't understand their gap assignment, because obviously a 3-4 to a 4-3 is a different thing, and a lot of these guys probably played 4-3 in high school. 
And so understanding your gap assignment is a big problem, but also just kind of understanding how to pass people off, how to pass off blockers. You know, what are you trying to do? What's your individual assignment? That's tough when you've only been on campus for six months. And so I think the biggest thing for AM fans is to step back and relax and say, okay, this was a lot of 18-year-olds, and they're only going to be 19 this year, but that was a lot of 18-year-olds that we asked a lot of, and they're going to be one year more seasoned, and with a little bit of coaching help and a little bit of a change in scheme, maybe we can get the ball rolling. Here's something I'm worried about as an A&M fan, and I'm just going to take the professional hat off real quick and just speak as a fan. I don't know that the support staff is there in the way that Jimbo maybe thinks that it's there. And I'll unpack that just a little bit. But one of the things I was most impressed about when Jimbo took over was Jerry Schmidt taking over the strength and conditioning program. This was his first year without Jerry Schmidt, if I recall. And this was the year that the injury bank just completely, you know, it it was just overflowing. So I'm not going to say that those two are completely correlated, but there is a little bit of cause for concern for me there in that department. I know that AM fans, some AM fans weren't happy with how recruiting went this year. And, you know, there's been some rumors about just all kinds of stuff behind the scenes. That, look, anytime you have a five and seven season when you're not supposed to, there's going to be tons of rumors about dysfunction in the program. But yeah, I don't know. That's going to be something that's interesting for me to follow as well. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about the offense. The run defense is kind of what they built their foundation on under Mike Elko. And that was yeah. not there. The pass defense was. The pass defense was not a problem, but look how much of that was because teams knew they could get five yards every time they tried to run the ball. Right. Yeah, running three-man fronts um, with and relying on a, a slim core of linebackers, which has only gotten slimmer, that's definitely one of the things that A&M must fix in this next transfer window is, look, after spring ball, you talk about the easiest layup that a show like us could ever, ever point to, fix the linebacking core. Your linebackers played suboptimal football last year. Even Edron Cooper, who's supposed to be kind of the superstar of that group, he did not play well last year. Uh, was not an effective pass rusher for the majority of the season. And just time after time, you watched AM linebackers pick the wrong gaps and fill the wrong holes and be out of position. And it was easy for schools like, Arkansas and Alabama and Ole Miss to get whatever they wanted on the ground. So the run defense absolutely has to to take just a gigantic step forward. Um, I will say, as far as support staff goes, that's that's certainly right on the money. Strength and conditioning, I don't know if there was one thing that you could point to there, but this year the injury bug was prevalent. Um, and you know, a little-known fact that a lot of the national service won't tell you AM went without a recruiting director for over half the season. They when when they lost Marshall uh Malchow to Oregon, who has just kicked up a storm up with the Ducks, um, it took six months for them to get their replacement in from Indiana. And so it it's just kind of it's things like that. They let their running backs coach go. Tyler and they Santucci. hired a replacement from Indiana too. Like no shade on the guy, but not exactly. Right. Not, not yeah, maybe not the sexiest hire. A good track record of recruiting, but not the sexiest hire. Your linebackers coach is now the defensive coordinator at Duke. Um, you let your running back coach go. You don't have replacements for them. It took you a long time to hire Bobby Petrino as the offensive coordinator. Just there's been a lot of lethargicness, seemingly from the outside, where 
you feel like to fix a program like this, you kind of need to be acting with haste, right? And that just hasn't been hasn't been what we've seen. I will say to push back a little bit. Not I'm not trying to you know homer or defend or anything like that, but to push back a little bit. If you're thinking about this from Jimbo's perspective, he had to get everything right because this is kind of his well, right. All the pressure came down on him. Everyone was talking about how he said, oh, my gosh, and the contract and the buyout and are the donors going to come up with 90 million dollars to buy out? His None of that was going to happen, obviously. But if you're Jimbo, you're looking at this saying, whoever I hire for my offensive coordinator, whoever I do whatever for, that's got to be the right call. So taking some time to figure that one out and make sure that it's a good fit and make sure that it's going to be good for your culture and good for all these young players and that everything else and that you're not going to have you know, so many of those young players transfer out. I mean, obviously they had a lot of transfers out, but they did manage to keep a majority of that freshman class and a lot of the talent that was actually on the field this year. So I think you have to give them some credit for taking their time and getting who they thought at least was the right guy. Now, time will tell whether or not Bobby Petrino is the right guy and who knows who could have been available if they were in a different situation. That's all speculation. There's going to be rumors. Everyone's going to try to break a story there, but at the end of the day, they ended up with the guy who they thought was the best call after probably circling around and looking at a bunch of different options too. And I think you have to give them some credit for doing that. On the defensive side, one more thing on just the rush defense and how much of a struggle that was. One of the things that they started to do towards the end of the season, which resulted in a little bit more success, was they started using, in their 3-4 defense, they started making those outside linebacker spots the 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 undersized defensive ends. So like in an eye white, and I think uh, Malik Silla was playing there a little bit too at those sort of outside linebacker spots. And I think that's actually a big key there because if you're those outside guys, number one, you want them to be rush edges in a passing situation, but you also need a guy with a little bit more size than just a, a smaller linebacker to be able to stand up in your run defense and maintain your gaps around the edges. And so uh, I think that if he can commit to, if Durkin can commit to doing that, you don't even necessarily need your linebacker numbers to come out because you had so many really good, talented edge rusher types just sitting on the bench for most of the year. And I think the the creativity there is going to go a long way. So we'll see how it ends up playing out next year in terms of positions and personnel and what they do. But I, I do think that the 3-4 with those bigger edges can work. I mean, it worked plenty against LSU. They weren't able to run the football very effectively for the majority of that game. And so... Uh, you know, I, I think that that could be something that they try that ends up with a little bit more success. They've got so much work to do uh, to finish out this this roster. They're currently, I believe they're sitting at 74 scholarships. You can play with 85. So they've got a lot of work to do in the transfer portal. Maybe it's a an extra spring commitment or, or something like that. As we sit here, National Signing Day, the late window, quote unquote, is this next week. So we'll wait and see how the Aggies fill out their roster I do believe that they can be an 8, 9, 10 win team if you squint. I mean, the talent is still they there. They got the talent for it. They the do. Talent the talent has off- not been an issue. Yeah, the offense has to to rise up and carry them, though. There's, there's no doubt about that. All right, well, from one head coach who's gotten a lot of public criticism to another one who I'm surprised has not gotten more. And we'll move through these last two relatively quickly. But Michigan State with Mel Tucker – I don't understand why the Spartans aren't getting more public flack. Maybe it's because they're not as fun to pile on as, as a Texas A&M is. They're not as in the national eyes for football. But you've got players facing criminal charges after just assault against Michigan after they, they lost that rivalry game. Mel Tucker has had one good season after he bailed on Colorado to take 
money at Michigan State. He had one really good year. Got extended, is one of the richest paid coaches in America, and has no skins on the wall. Has not done anything, uh, really, to warrant that. People pile on Jimbo. Jimbo's won a national championship. And yet, here's Mel Tucker being paid the same amount of money for one winning season. Last year, they go five and seven. I think for me, you watched what that offense did, or rather what they couldn't do, and you realize Kenneth Walker covered up a lot of warts for that offensive scheme. I mean, I've, I've said it for, for the last two years. Peyton Thorne is not a good college quarterback. He's a bus driver, uh, and thankfully, his uh, ability to hand it off to, to Kenneth Walker really propelled that season forward. Last year, you didn't have that, and shocker, your offense was, was incredibly lethargic. I think they also need conference momentum early. You talk about a team that really needs some early wins. Now, they're doing well in recruiting. They've got a big-time five-star David Stone who's probably going to commit to them this next week on the defensive line. But you can have all the talent in the world, and if you get off to a slow start in conference play, it's really tough to recover. So for me, they've got to find a way, whether it's a new quarterback or just – getting wide receivers open. They've got some talent out wide. They've got to find a way to get the ball consistently down the field a little bit more. And then defensively, it it was tough sledding. They could not consistently get stops on the ground, through the air. Their pass rush was anemic at times. I think all of that really combined to where you watch the Spartans kind of quit on the back half of that season. For me, that's the first step, is you've got to rally the troops and find an identity, find something to commit to throughout this offseason that doesn't allow your guys to check out when you're two and four, when you're three and five, and really fighting to save that season. Yeah, and I think the questions about Mel Tucker's program are fully warranted at this point. You talk about the results on the field, the character concerns with the players that were involved in that altercation, maybe underlying culture issues, just the fact that Mel Tucker has not been a head coach that long. And he was extended for an ungodly amount of money for one good season on the back of Kenneth Walker. Um, Looking to the future, and I don't want to do too much of a victory lap. I didn't think Michigan State would go five and seven this year. I thought this was going to be a step back here while they built for 2023, though. And I think 2023 is going to be really interesting because they're bringing in some really good talent. They're I'm impressed with their recruiting efforts. They're 25th nationally in the composite. Only 15 commits, but nine of those 15 are um, are four stars. Four stars are better. So also bringing in some really nice talent in the transfer portal. And if we're talking about what the fix is for Michigan State, they're going to be a Big Ten team. I don't think that they're ever going to be a team that has an explosive offense with amazing athletes and just, you know, blows people out with an amazing offense. They're going to be a Big Ten team that's built on defense, kind of follows the Michigan model. I know Spartan fans probably don't like me saying that, but your path to success is, you know, the Michigan model with elite defense, um, solid running game, and doing just enough in the passing game, and winning games to the tune of, you know, 28-20 a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And that got them a lot of success under Mark D'Antonio. So, I'm really impressed with the talent that Tucker's bringing in. I think this could be a nice bounce back year for them. And they're doing, they're getting creative with bringing talent in, right? Like they signed the number one guy out of Oklahoma. They're going down into the South and getting some athletes that 
um, have maybe been looked over by the big dogs down in the SEC or the ACC. So I, I'm really impressed with the efforts. And Mel Tucker's certainly using those recruiting inroads, but they've got to find somebody that can be at least a competent game manager at quarterback. Thorne's shown that at times, but he's also shown that he really needs an elite running back to be really successful. But they really need somebody that can really drive that bus and maybe even take over a game if the run defense isn't or if the run offense isn't working. If the run game's not working, can your quarterback make some throws and kind of get the defense off balance? That's what I'm looking for for Michigan State. And I think I don't want to say the future is, you know, all sunshine and roses, but I think it's brighter than it looks after a five and seven year this year. I would agree with that. I mean, my biggest concern for them really is their defense. And I don't want to get too off topic because obviously you know Kenneth Walker being gone was a big issue it exposed some problems on their offense I think they're pretty reliant on him guys they gave up 416 yards per game on defense um, that, that's not going to be a winning formula in the Big Ten no matter who you are and it really kind of exposes itself when you look into um, some of the, the the final scores that they had right so they held some teams lower at, at the beginning of the year, they held uh, Western Michigan to 13. They shut out Akron. Cool, congrats. But then you start getting into the more competitive teams. They play Washington at Washington. They lose 39 to 28. That's that's a big number. Obviously, we talked about Washington and how good their offense is, but, I mean, that's a big number. They lost 34 to 7 to Minnesota. They lose 27-13 to Maryland. They lose 49 to 20 to Ohio State. And so when you start looking at some of these totals – I start getting concerned about the points they're giving up because if you're not structured to be an explosive offense in the Big Ten, you can't allow yourself to get down. I mean, we even saw what Ohio State struggled with against Michigan when they got down in a game just because of how good some of these defenses can be and how the how in the Big Ten you start to get down and teams can bury you just with how physical the defense can be. We, we I think, need to focus a little bit more for Michigan State on how do we start to get off the field, stop drives from just going on forever, stop guys from running up scores on us. Let's not get in some 10 to 14 point holes so that our maybe not so explosive offense can afford to, you know, put some drives together, get some points on the board, you know, kick a couple field goals and, and keep us in a game. Even if we're a little outmatched or the other team has, you know, a really good quarterback or something, let's get ourselves in a position to stay competitive through the end of the game. So we don't just kind of throw our hands up and say, well, we can't do this anymore. Right. And, and obviously, and I don't want to you know blast on the character concerns. You know, obviously all the Michigan state fans are going to point to Michigan's defensive lineman and what he did, but you know, th that is a bit of a problem. I, I don't want to blast them for it. I know that it's not every single program, but that was kind of an issue. Um, and and I, we talked about it, obviously, when it happened. But you got to kind of question yourself. Was it more to do with the program overall? Or was it just kind of what happened that night? And the fact that that was kind of a reflection of how their season was going, right? That night, they couldn't do anything on offense. They got stifled on offense, and their defense couldn't get off the field. That's really what it came down to is Michigan. They kicked a lot of field goals in that game. Right. But it came on extended drives and it came on long possessions. And so for me, when I'm looking at this, if you're Michigan State, that's a frustrating, demoralizing thing to a team. You got to find a way to get off the field. You got to find a way to stop these extended drives from happening or else you're, you're not going to have any success against efficient, you know, explosive offenses like Ohio State and maybe more of a Michigan when you have more of these, you know, sort of advanced offenses that do that. 
you're not gonna have any success there and you're definitely not gonna have any success when you go up against your out of conference foes and things like that if you have ambitions towards a playoff and you know bigger bowl games and things like that it, it just it's not a recipe for success well, I'm interested to see what Michigan State's role is in the new Big Ten, especially as USC, maybe UCLA join in a couple of years as well. There's no doubt they've fallen several steps behind Michigan, Mich- or, uh, I'm sorry, Ohio State and Penn State. You know, what? what's the new look Wisconsin going to be like? What is Iowa going to look like with a competent quarterback? How does Minnesota continue to progress? Is Illinois for real? I mean, you could see Michigan State backsliding very, very easily if they don't start to fix some of these things. I think it's certainly – Mel Tucker's not going to go anywhere because of that contract, but it's kind of the the frog boiling the frog situation. If you mm-hmm. boil the frog while they're in the pot, they don't realize they're being cooked until it's too late. I, if Mel Tucker doesn't start to, to figure some things out, I mean, he's going to find himself in the cellar of the Big Ten very, very quickly. Uh, a team that is no stranger to the cellar, and <laughs> Bulls fans, I'm so sorry. Um, when you're 4-26 and in not even three full seasons under your last head coach, uh, it, it just is what it is. 1-11 USF is how we're finishing out this one. And it's because a program, I think USF is a program that just doesn't get any buzz. They don't get any any sort of run on the national scale. And yet I think the ceiling for USF is, is eight, nine wins. If they're really humming on all cylinders, they're in the ceilings even higher than that, man. The ceiling has been 11 wins yeah. in the past. Like they've, they've gotten way, way up there. Yeah. Especially in the new American, right? I mean, like, yeah. you know, you lose your, your flagship programs. Now we'll see what UTSA brings over as, as all these conferences realign, but they're in Tampa. They are in a mecca of high school football, and yet they're not recruiting their own state effectively. They have 15 signees for this class once everything is finalized in a week or two. Um, only four of those guys, according to my count, are from Florida. That's just not good enough. You, you obviously fire Jeff Scott. Rest in peace to Jeff Scott, who went four in 26 and not even three full seasons. Um, Scott is, is now at Clemson, where he was the wide receivers coach before he got hired down to Tampa. He's returned to the homestead, supposed to be maybe the best wide receivers coach in college football, though I think Brian Hartline would have something to say about that. I will say, they're 1-11, but they were kind of competitive in a couple games. Guys, they're a missed field goal away from forcing overtime against Florida. Now, Florida wasn't a juggernaut this year, but still, you know, competing with a team that has multiple four and five stars, that's that's nothing to sneeze at. Pretty much everything needs to go right for USF and can be improved with the Bulls. Where where are some elements that you guys would say, okay, here's if, if I'm taking over this program and maybe they're a five-year plan candidate down the line, where's kind of that first step that you're starting with? I think I'm going to try to be transfer portal U yeah. for all of these Florida guys that leave the state and then don't cut it out wherever they go. So if they're, you know, a highly rated guy out of high school, they go sign with Georgia or Ohio state or Alabama, Clemson, all these programs that are just raiding the state of Florida. Like we talked about with Miami, I'm going to try to brand myself as transfer portal. U for those guys that are ready to make a homecoming after maybe getting homesick after the first year or not cutting it out or not making, you know, a starting position, come on home to Tampa and we will let get you all the reps you possibly want. 
there's a lot of guys that could be in that situation every single year. You couple that with getting cherry picking just four or five guys from your immediate area that are getting overlooked by the big boys in Florida. You know, I, I think you can put together a really talented roster for the American that way, at least a roster that's fighting for bowl eligibility, not going one and 11, right? That's what UCF does. Yeah, that's what UCF does every single year. They're not getting four or five star guys, or they're not originally, but now they're starting to compete for those four or five star guys because right. people are realizing that they can get developed there. So, yeah, I mean, that's my at least, you know, surface level plan. Obviously, much easier said than done. You've got to be able to back up that you can provide an avenue to playing time and, you know, development to these guys. But yeah, I, I just think there's enough talent in the state of Florida in the high school levels and guys that are wanting to transfer out of those schools and come back home to put together at least a competitive roster. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right about the, the uh, transfer side of it. The high school side of it is the harder part, right? Because you're going to have talented guys coming out of these cities and you know, they're going to be looking at, oh, well, look at what Florida State just did. They just put up a pretty good season. Oh, yeah, Miami's got loads going on, too. Big recruiting class. Maybe I should consider going over there. But oh, well, Florida's still that guy, too. Down. They need to not shoot for those guys that are actually getting well, and, from those well, But you also have to consider this is where a lot of people are looking as well. Everyone knows that Florida's talent rich. So Georgia's trying to reach across the yeah. border. And then, you know, Alabama and Auburn are both trying to recruit this. You're still going to have the Mississippi schools recruiting this. Like everyone in the SEC is going to look at Florida and try to recruit this. And not and just the SEC. UCF. Exactly. And UCF. Yeah. And so you're, you're starting to realize like, yeah, this is going to be tough when you don't have anything on the wall to prove that you're that guy. Guys, they were the 130th scoring defense this year. They get a many. Out of 131. Um, so they weren't the worst. Don't ask any more questions. Um, they, they weren't good. That's 41 points per game that they gave up. They gave up 516 yards of offense. That's yeah. not good. I mean, you can talk about how their offense, it was okay. Like, they scored 28 points a game, 68th in the country. Like, that's that's not terrible. That's pedestrian, right? It's, it's middle of the road. Not too bad. But a lot of those points are going to be coming in situations where you're already down 40 and we just want to go home. And so, you know, I hate to say it, but man, you got to start playing some defense. Like you just got to, you got to find a way to finish top 120 in defense before we start talking about, you know, getting some of these guys to buy in. You, Trey, you mentioned developing players. What have they proven in developing players? I mean, you know, Gary Bohannon had a great, great season with Baylor the year before transfers over because he loses his job completes 56% of his passes and barely over a thousand yards passing. And I understand he only played, I understand that extrapolated over the season. Still not good. He wasn't, he wasn't putting up massive numbers here. He was putting up, you know, you know, end of the season Stetson Bennett numbers, no offense, Stetson, sorry. Um, But like, you know, it's, it's, it's not a great situation in terms of what they've been able to develop. Now you got to hope it's on the coaching, right? And that, you know, the, the new coaching coming in is going to, spur something new and you're going to get some assistance and that's going to be the guy, right? You got to hope that, you know, this, you know, great wide receivers coach is going to come in here and get something out of them. But I mean, man, you got to start doing something right. Or, you know, one and 11, I don't want that to become the norm there. Right. I don't want that to become the norm in a fairly competitive, you know, American conference. Like that's not a nobody conference. There's some good teams that conference that aren't going to roll over that, you know, have some ambitions of being in some bigger bowl games and, and competing with some of these bigger programs and all that. So, you know, I, it, you're kind of in a rough spot if you're South Florida, just in terms of who you're competing against in state for these recruits 
And also, you, you know, when you don't get those recruits and you got lower level guys anyways, you're not proving to these guys that you can, you know, develop and compete. And so that I think the solution for them is, you know, dumb as it might sound is, I think you just have to find some way, trick plays, play some defense, squeak some stuff out, pull some stuff out of thin air. You got to find a way to win some games this year and start to prove to guys that, hey, this is a place that can be successful and and have something to sell in the transfer portal to high school recruits, whatever it is, you got to sell something because everybody else in the state, uh, you know, maybe not Florida necessarily, but everybody else in the state is skyrocketing in their stock. And, you know, there's going to, it's going to be hard to compete with that long-term. Well, and for high school recruiting, the trickle down is really going to hurt USF because we talked about last episode, how Miami is currently the tier two. And when Miami is the tier two, that just leaves almost nothing for the UCFs yep. and USFs of the world. And when UCF is getting all of that next level of guys, yeah, like USF is really going to struggle. And that's why I'm thinking, you know, primarily build it out of the transfer portal, not go full Texas. Yeah. State. Don't go full Jake Spavadol where you're taking zero high school kids. Right. Never right. go full Jake Spavadol. You should never go full Jake Spavadol. We should, you know, put that on a sticker, a t-shirt or something, but. Yeah, I mean, do not go, you know, no high school kids, but really focus on getting your main difference makers from the transfer portal. And obviously, yeah, it's going to be like a last chance you situation because Mm -hmm. no one wants to go to USF right now. But if that's your only option and you're talented, like sign them up and get the most out of them and coach up those guys. Coach who you can get. That's that. If you can boil it all down, just coach up who you can get and fight for ball eligibility. Show that you can make progress. Well, the UCF model, I think, is the path forward here. And Alex Golish, who's the new head coach, he's got to find that identity to sell, right? They thought it was going to be that athleticism, that pure playmaker that Jeff Scott had coached at Clemson. They thought that was going to be the selling point, right? Very similar to what Joey McGuire is selling at Texas Tech. The difference is Joey Max winning and Jeff Scott didn't, right? I mean, he beat Howard this year. That, that was the only game that he won before he was fired. So I think for Golish, an offensive line coach by trade, he's got to build up the trenches. And I think he's got to start by saying, hey, we're going to develop, you know, I don't know what kind of offense he's going to run, but we, we're going to develop this kind of offense. And it's going to be built with good bones that start in the trenches, that give a quarterback the ability to make plays. And if you're a playmaker, you're coming here knowing, hey, we're going to recruit quarterbacks who will have time, who will have the resources to then distribute the football, whether that be through the air, be on the ground, et cetera. I think USF's going to have to win games and shootouts to start, right? And then you start to recruit some of that defensive line talent. Hopefully they can supplement it in the portal. I think USF's a fun brand. I think if they can be good, yeah. it's it's yeah. it's a fun story to watch, right? I mean, you think back to 2007, like, heck yeah, man, let's go USF, right? Yeah. I'd love to see them. On the cover of Sports Illustrated as yeah, it gets into right. the AP poll. You know, what you could do is you could go the total other direction if you're USF and just say, I'm going to find the biggest possible offensive lineman who will commit to me. And we're going to do nothing but just bench and squat stuff like that all offseason. And we're going to get as strong as we can up front and just run it down your throat. You know, we're going to find decent running backs who'll just throw their bodies at a wall. And we're just going to run it, run it straight down your throat. And we're going to time of possession. And you can't score you know, 41 points on us a game or 42 points a game on us if you get, you know, no time to do it, right? And you just, you do that, you play low scoring games 
And I mean, that could be a, that could be a way to do it. Kind of take the sort of the Tulane model. Obviously, Tulane played much better defense than what uh, USF played, but they they were kind of a possession team. Didn't do a whole bunch through the air this year. You know, they're you know relying on some of their running game and just being a little bit stronger and, and possession ball. So you know, you could kind of do the Tulane model. You know, play some good defense. You know, because you're only on the field for you know 15 minutes a game. I did not see us ever referring to the Tulane model as a pipeline for success at the beginning of this season. And yet <laughs> here we are cotton ball championship in hand. Um, well guys, yeah, four, four more teams for what's the fix part two. We've got more coming. If you would like to see a team covered, if your team needs a fix and you want to hear us talk about it, like Sam did with Navy, let us know, reach out to us through Instagram, Twitter. You can email the show as well at three tech pod. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. Let us know as well. If you think that Miami has overstepped by firing Josh Gaddis, what we feel like is a little preemptive. Um, and then obviously, as we mentioned earlier, head on over to the YouTube channel. Any support, whether it's a subscription, um, you know, a follow, it's it's free, obviously. Comments, et cetera, likes on the video. It helps us grow tremendously. So we would really appreciate that uh, from you guys. And uh, as we head into the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be kicking off part of our a new series on the podcast interviews with analysts, recruiting experts, social media personalities for various teams around the country. I believe Iowa is actually going to be up first. So uh, stay tuned to our social media accounts for that. And uh, obviously subscribe if you are not already on the the podcasting side. That's where it will hit first and foremost. So for Trey Reeves, Garrett Turney, I'm Mitch Mason. Appreciate you hanging out with us. What's the fix? Part two in the books. Let us know who you'd like to see covered in part three. And I'm sure we'll do that very, very shortly. Until next time, so long, everybody. Woo!